and in my own experience, that intersection that sort of creates happiness is creativity and then permission to do so. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. All for a good life, a happy life, a self-improved life. Rudy, we're recording this while you're out skiing, so you're definitely enjoying the good life. Yeah, I'm not, I don't ski. And uh, no, I'm, you know me, I'm in the snow. I'm in the snowy uh, mountaintops, yes. And I'm thinking about the importance of this episode. When I'm out snowshoeing and hiking, I'm, it's a very meditative process. And that's when I get my creative juices going. And what I love about this episode is we focus on the power of creativity on this episode. I'm so focused on how important creativity is to happiness. And our guest today, Brittany Delaney, supports what I've been advocating for years. Not only does she support it, she's dedicated her life to it. She's a former slam poet. She's used to work with educators and building up curriculum and focusing on the importance of creative arts. She's now the executive director of Black Table Arts in Minneapolis. And we touch on a wide range of topics about creativity and and why that is so important in educating our youth. And we cannot divorce creativity. We can't take the arts out of education. And that's what I really love about today's discussion. Absolutely. Because one of the things is that this idea that arts is somehow separate from education is disingenuous. If you want to have a real understanding of history or even of science, music, art, language, dance, even dance tells a story. Or, you know, as we've talked about how film with, you know, when we talked with Dahlia Schweitzer about how film will reflect where we are and maybe where we're going in our projections. So yeah, absolutely. And this is a lovely conversation about education, about the process, about ways to update the way that we connect with students to make sure that students are learning and that they're engaged because we're doing our students a disservice if we are not, if we're not updating and we're not including the arts and we're not relating to them and meeting them where they are. Yeah, I agree. This is a great episode. The very next episode, we're going to be speaking to another educator who a good friend of mine is in the creative arts. He's actually, he's literally a rock star touring with his band, but uh, he also focuses on why creativity is so important to education. And I like to focus on it for happiness. So I'm excited for listeners to listen to this episode and hear more about why we focus so much on the power of creativity. All right. Let's talk about the power of creativity in education. Brittany, welcome to Good Is In The Details. Let's learn more about Black Table Arts and what is your role with Black Table Arts? So I am the executive director. Just celebrated my one-year anniversary in this position. Congratulations. Thank you. So Black Table Arts is a safe space for Black creatives. It was birthed out of the uprising in 2020, sort of Minneapolis post-George Floyd. We were all, you know, separately activists and Black Table Arts has existed as an organization since 2015. There was no building and sort of no centralized space. And so there was just kind of workshops and open mics around the city that were happening. In 2020, we were all activists out on the streets. I don't know anybody here that really wasn't. And Issa Rae, uh, the creator of of Insecure, gosh, sorry, this is one of my favorite things. So she like started out on YouTube, had a series there, got picked up, created Insecure. So she actually shared Black Table Arts as a place to donate. And because of that uptick, we brought mm-hmm. in enough donations to actually get a building, be able to rent and be in a space that we're safe in. And, you know, with someone who shares in the vision of what we are doing, 
And so now we have that centralized location where we have regular programming and we also open up the doors to um, other Black creatives and other organizations to hold safe space there as well. When it comes to poetry or art, is there, what is, just for our listeners, if they wanted to pick something up themselves, what is something Mm -hmm. that you share with the youth that's like always been consistent and has just gone over really well and it's really resonated with them? Like, is there a book or a piece of art or music? Yeah, so... Most of the young people that uh, end up in our space are interested in writing. So as a general, you know, state of being, I'm always going to suggest reading um, in whichever field you're most interested. I know for me, one of the books that stretched my mind and my imagination was Kindred by Octavia Butler. Um, We actually have breakout rooms inside of Black Table Arts and one is dedicated to her. One of my favorite authors for sure. And she definitely explores that science fiction aspect as well. So that's one that I think my young people have really connected to over time. And then also like Brave New Voices. So I came up as a youth slammer in the HBO Brave New Voices series. And so YouTube has just a slew of those videos available. And I'm always directing them to, you know, sort of look at young people that are on there that are performing from friends of mine all the way over and Deaf Poetry Jam. Russell Simmons' uh, older series where he brought poets that were just incredible artists from all over the place. Those people became mentors and friends of mine, the people that I got to be on the road with. Just incredible experiences. So I'm always directing the kids back to them as well. But just generally in terms of stretching your imagination and learning how to develop work that's eclectic and full-bodied, I'm always suggesting reading. That is, you cannot you know, get where you need to get without sort of reading those that came before you and, and sort of just all always living in a book. I think the most of your inspiration will come from that space. What is it like when you see the younger you doing that performing? I'm just curious. And then what is it like when you're sharing that, when the youth see the younger you? You know, I think sort of at the most basic level, I think I go through what all artists go through. It's like, I don't like the sound of my voice. (laughs) Um, But on a much deeper level, they get to see a version of me that is where they are right now. A me that was, you know, working my way out of, you know, certain abuses and me that, you know, was searching for support and a safe space and trying to find my voice. And you can tell that in the lyrics of what I'm saying, you can tell that in how I show up. And so for them, it allows them connect to to connect, I think, better to the me that's standing in front of them because I've been where you've been. And this is the proof of that. So there's always just sort of a ton of questions around my life around the poems. Are they about me? You know, like, where does it all connect? How did I get myself out? I think it always opens up this conversation around the connection and the journey to get where I am today. Um, and the reality that I'm speaking to them from a complete place of, of understanding. I'm always grateful to be able to look back and, and bring that piece of me forward, even if I don't like the sound of my voice. <laughs> what inspired you when you were younger to get into poetry and to performing? Was there an artist that you thought, I want to be like that or they're amazing? I can do this. So I was a black box kid. Um, St. Paul Central High School had the black box at that time under Jan Mandel. And so we built social justice theater, original plays that toured and saw you know more than 10,000 people in the school year. And so I was always surrounded by, you know, in high school, young artists. And so there was this artist unique, Ashley Gilbert, and she was just this incredible, like powerhouse youth poet. Um, And at the time, there was no real youth scene in Minnesota. So she was kind of, you know, solo out there. And I remember just sitting in the back of the black box in the hallway. And uh, I'm sort of what I guess you would call kind of a closet poet. Like I always wrote poetry um, and had been writing poetry since I was really young, but I never wanted to tell anyone because that like was not cool (laughs) at the time. And I hadn't really, you know, 
like I knew about spoken word. I knew about Deaf Poetry Jam. I had a mentor, Loretta, that, you know, I was staying the night at her house and she like played season one of Deaf Poetry Jam for me. And I connected to it in that moment, but I never thought I would be doing that myself. And so Ashley actually sat outside with me and listened to this poem that I had written. And she was like, you're good enough. You know, like you, you need to get out here. You need to, you know, get on stage with this. And she really encouraged me to put my voice to it and get up there. And at the same time, we had the youth poetry scene was coming to Minnesota because we had a uh, seasoned slam artist here who was talking to San Francisco and talking to the organization out there and lobbying to get it in Minnesota. So really the timing lined up perfectly. I think I read her that poem and a week later the slam was happening and they were trying to put together the first Minnesota team. So people were slamming all over the state of Minnesota to be one of six on this team to go to San Francisco for the youth slam and and for that tour. And so I got on stage literally a week later and I made it through the qualifiers and kept going. And she and I actually made the team. It was, I think just, it was just this moment of freedom. It was the most control I had over my own life at that point. It was the space where I opened up about abuse I was dealing with at home. And it created a community for me when I didn't have, you know, necessarily the support in coming out about this abuse. It created this safe space in this community for me where I did have a place to do that, where people encouraged me to use my voice and to keep writing my way through it. I mean, had it not been for, I think, just all of those pieces, Lorita for introducing me to Deaf Poetry Jam and Jam Mandel for having the black box for all of us and Ashley for encouraging me to get up there. I think that just wouldn't have happened. And then, you know, then we had the slam world coming to us at the exact same time. So it was just the perfect kind of storm. I knew the first time I got up there and I, I got off the stage literally just exhausted. Like I, I felt like I had actually released something and left it there. I knew that this is where I was going to be for the rest of my life if I could help it. So 20 years later, still am. That's beautiful. I, the other day in class, we were just reading um, Audre Lorde's essay, Uses of the Erotic. And I told my students I had to read this essay several times before I got it. And now that I'm reading it over and over again, I'm just kind of blown away by the genius of it. And what you're talking about is actually reminding me of just this conversation that I had with the students of what Lord was advocating for was reacquainting ourselves with the notion of creativity and passion, which is the original Greek meaning of eros, that chaos. And that when you reduce the sense of the erotic to something that is simply sexual, then we are robbing women of all of this potential and this creative force that filters out in every single way. And she just stresses the importance of that creative spirit to filter into all areas of your life and to not be afraid of maybe the hurdles of what other people say to you. And so when you say that you like left something like you were kind of reborn on the stage and you were able to get so much out through this creative force, I just think that that's a very, very cool thing. And Rudy and I have talked about this on the show before of the significance of creativity that when you tap into that, it's not just something that's like a hobby outside of yourself, but it's the way in which you can live fully and it radiates in all different areas. Yeah. I think, I think our premise there is that, uh, and I think the conclusion that I've come to, I don't know if this is definitive at all. And I don't mean to put words into anybody's mouth, but I think the key to happiness is creativity and whatever that means to you. And Brittany, it's clearly, it's poetry, slam poetry. It's what you do as an executive director. It's what you're encouraging for everybody that's coming in for Black Table Arts. 
But if you take an expansive view of creativity, it doesn't necessarily have to be a performance out in front of people. It could be something, yeah. maybe you like to create very unique birthday parties for your children, or it could be something like, you know, coloring with your children or doing small, I don't want to call those things small, but some people may think, may not think is creative. I'm constantly hearing from people that, oh, I can't do what you do because I don't write or I don't act or I don't do music or anything. I'm not a creative person. And what I try to immediately do is to say, stop belittling yourself. Because in my opinion, when you're saying you're not a creative person, I hear I'm not a happy person. I know that's that's like a crazy leap, but I, I no, just I, I feel like that the key, that happiness is creativity. If you don't yeah. if you don't have creativity in some kind in your life in what you're doing, happiness is going to be elusive for you. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I fully agree. And um, you know, one of the quotes that I live by is actually Audre Lorde's. It's the caring for myself is not self indulgence; it's self preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. I think that yeah, I agree. I think the sort of intersection. And in my own experience, that intersection that sort of creates happiness is creativity and then permission to do so. Um, so Black Table Arts, I know we open up the door for all types of creatives. Um, we have dancers and graphic designers and uh, painters. So it kind of it's that space for everyone to be and exist. And you don't have to be, you know, at a professional level to do it. You know, you just have to give yourself permission to do it. I couldn't imagine life without creativity. Um, I guess in my mind, it, it almost falls into this routine. I think that most of us have gotten into, which is like work, we maybe get the weekend off, and then we go back into work again. And I think even in moments where I've tried to live that it just is so gray, <laughs> and so bleak, and it takes away from my happiness. Gray, that's perfect. Having creativity in the spaces is survival. Totally agree. I know, I know at the beginning of this, Gwen was saying, Oh, you know, my day job is a lawyer and, and it was, and it, and I, I purely did that for almost like 10 years. It was, yeah. unfortunately it was also weekends. So it was just week, weekends, week, weekends, week, weekends, week, week for like 10 years long. And I had personally put aside creativity because I thought that was going to interfere with my success. Turns out it interfered mm-hmm. with my happiness and my happiness wound up being the key to my success. So once I brought creativity in, I truly feel that that was when my success as a lawyer came about because I was happy. And I teach, I teach law school. And what I'm trying okay. to, what I'm trying to tell my law students is that an unhappy lawyer is going to be an unethical lawyer. Like that's when you're going to be doing unethical things. That's when you're going to be cutting corners. That's when you're going to miss, make mistakes. I mean, we all make mistakes, but like, I think that that's one of the the pillars. Like you need to be happy in one shape or the other in order to be an excellent ethical lawyer. I don't think a lot of people are talking that way these days, but I love, I love what you're doing with black table. I I love how expansive it is. And if we could just expand the universe of what is creativity, I really think that happiness will follow. I mean, I'm, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to make everyone in the world happy, but this message that you guys are giving across and what that's one of our messages that we're trying to get out of here. That's why I'm glad we're teaming up here and trying to get this out of there. And now a quick break to tell you about Newsly. You've heard me tell you about this before. You can download it for one month free premium subscription with the offer code, the details. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. Newsly is an all-in-one super app for iOS and Android. It picks up on the top trending articles on the web on topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. 
Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports to tech to transportation, philosophy, education. And they have podcasts you can listen to. Good is in the details. Download and use Newsly for free now from newsly.me and check out the link in the show notes. Offer code the details for one month free premium subscription. And now back to the show. Absolutely. Yeah, we, I mean, we have a project that's coming in and they're painting benches. And there's people coming in from, you know, all walks of life that don't consider themselves painters, but they're coming to be a part of this thing of these, you know, benches that are going to be on these different corners that will be inspirational and creative. Um, And I just love in Minnesota as a whole right now in response, I think, in part to the uprising is the fact that the state and everyone is starting to lean to artists about how it is that we move forward. It's such an acknowledgement of what we've been saying and doing this entire time. And that's that art is critical. It's a part of the process and it needs to be that. And the funding needs to match that. And it's necessary in our education. It's necessary in our day-to-day lives and in our workspaces. So now we have people from everywhere that are like, you know, they worked in this job for 10 years and now they are fulfilling their life as artists and figuring out how to keep both together and and mix them up. And so that's like the story of a lot of artists that are out here today. I know we have like a theater artist that, you know, is like well awarded who was like, yeah, prior to this, I was making six figures and working in corporate America and finance. And I was just unhappy. You know, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. And, you know, a series of things happened in life that sort of made being unhappy no longer the option. And so now he's, you know, one of our most prolific artists out here and um, one of our most awarded actors from the state. And so I, I look at that sort of as, as, as a framework. Uh, everyone that comes in usually is starting at that space if they're not a young person that is doing art through high school. And I look at Black Table Arts as the space that's constantly reminding you to give yourself permission. And it's, you brought up a very good point about the funding and in education, right? Whenever there's going to be something cut, you know, it's going to be the arts. It's just, oh yeah, it's just, that's just the way it is. I mean, and it's terrible, right? So there's this wonderful, Mm -hmm. there's this great focus on more STEM, more STEM education, you know, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, and computer science. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. I totally understand that. But if you can marry that with some creativity, if you can inject creativity in there, then I really think you're going to have holistic individuals. If you're only focusing on those things, quite frankly, we're, we're teaching our children to be unhappy. The fact that you are doing what you're doing, because the, let's just be honest, funding is just going to continue to be cut. At least people can still yeah. go and find that importance. Yeah. Have you had these arguments with educators when they when they've tried to cut arts? Like what what do you do? What do you say? Like what's that like? So in terms of like our day jobs, right? So I before I accepted the role as executive director, I've been serving as a curriculum consultant for K through twelve and also STEM. And I work for various districts in Minnesota, some in Texas, some in Chicago, some in Philly, some in California. So I've been quite busy. And it's been just a combination of educators being tired of the status quo. And then I think test scores reflecting sort of a lack of movement that's pushed a lot of districts to lean into their racial equity departments, which almost automatically lean into artists. And that's allowed me to be in a lot of school districts. And some of the conversation really has already been had because the stats are what they are right now. I mean, I think Minneapolis is functioning below 50% for reading and for math. The reality is they've run out of options there. They've run out of 
ways to make this better. They can't push the testing material down anybody's throat any more than they have over the years. And so it's like, who else can we look to? And automatically that's kind of been artist. And then I've had sort of the gift of marrying art and curriculum. So I partner up with these different school districts. I worked as an arts lit facilitator in an ALC here for four years straight, and then eventually had to kind of branch off because other schools needed me. And curriculum for us looks like, yes, I can write the traditional, but it also looks like finding spaces where art fits into the lessons that are already there. And so that's my job coming into that space um, is having that conversation around culturally responsive and responsible curriculum and taking art and putting it into what already exists. And the outcomes have been brilliant. You know, seeing young people excited to come into the space, seeing young people even get creative with their own lessons, because if we can't, you know, if we can't get young people to come into this space and be able to play with the pieces of what they're learning, then we're just sort of looking at this mechanical ordeal and that's not getting us anywhere. And so I think another piece of my presence in that space is about welcoming young people into their lesson. That includes even bringing them to district trainings and having teachers pair up with them and ask what it is that they need and really listen to not just what it is that they want to learn, but listen to who it is that they want to be. And once the young people exit that space, the the onus is on the educators and the district to find a curriculum that includes all of that. And so we get to be creative in that space. And so I've been working in that role for nine years. And then I took the role as executive director. So I'm still phasing out of some of my contracts and still have my hands on quite a bit of it. And then, you know, you you work with all these teachers for years, they become friends and family. So I keep my email open and I am still taking a couple of conversations a week about what can we do or I'm at a you know standstill here. How can I get art into this? And so I still do it. Without getting too specific or giving out any names or anything, like, have, where, have you ever been hired in the past where people couldn't figure out where they could inject art into the teaching and then they hired you or you reworked the curriculum and then like, scores have gone up and happiness has gone up and students have, have, have yeah. been really, okay. A- any, yeah. without giving any names, any examples you can give? Yeah, actually we just saw a turnaround in a district in uh, North Dallas and one in Houston and also seeing some scores change in schools in St. Paul. So super grateful for that. I think it's just the kids can't, I have a couple rules coming in. Like if, if the kids can't see themselves in the curriculum, then they have no reason to invest in it. And I think just getting enough educators who are tired of like seeing their kids not make it over the line, like teaching doesn't pay you a lot. Nobody becomes an educator because the money is so great, you know? So they're just, they, I think everybody just hit a point where it was like, I'm teaching the same old same. The kids are not interested in what it is. They're not invested in this. And I can see that it doesn't, it doesn't consider their real lives. It doesn't consider where they come from. And oftentimes it asks them to leave who they are outside of the door in a lot of ways, especially when we keep on materials that are microaggressive. And so I think asking these kids what they need, asking them what they hear and what they have right now, and having teachers that are willing to get creative about how to include it, and also be mindful of what district requirements are, because that's really where the, the chain actually is. It's like district is like, nah, you can't do that. So my job is to look at what district has and to look at what these kids want to do and work with the teacher to find the creative middle ground that respects both of those things. The kids are showing up they're invested. We're seeing better um, outcomes in attendance. We're seeing more participation inside of the classroom. So it's been rewarding because I think as an artist, this was a conversation years ago that wasn't realistic. You know, like the school districts weren't going to put funding toward this. And finally, there's just been a turn where it's like, we're not breaking over the line of proficiency. We're not breaking over that 50% line in reading and in writing. 
So you kind of have to look back at your artists. You kind of have to look at the people that know how to, you know, branch outside. That has been saying this for eons, that we need to have more of this in the schools. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm grateful for the brick wall that they hit. And I'm grateful for the hard work that it threw us into, because when I come into these school districts, it's it's a mess. You know, like there's everything is pretty much gridlocked. And some of that is in part due to teachers that have been there forever that are like, no, this is you know, we need to stay on the line because it's scary to think about asking yourself to be creative after years of following a routine. And then just good old fashioned beliefs that this is the way it was for when, you know, we were coming up. And so these kids just need to adjust. So you're sort of battling through all of that and then the district requirements and we find our way, you know. Isn't that, isn't that just hard when like, and I get it, I might be guilty of this a little tiny bit, although I'm trying to move away from it. Well, I went through that. And if I went through that and I'm fine, I'm, I'm fine. I look at myself in the mirror, I'm totally fine. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. Like I was really unhappy. Like we got to do something different. Yeah. What we think might have worked in the past probably didn't work in the past. Like you have Absolutely. to be open to change. You have to be open to hitting brick walls and trying to blow up those bricks and go through it and rebuild those walls and, and with obviously with different colors, like more art, more creativity. That's great. I, I can't imagine how difficult those conversations are, especially with oh, people yeah. who are so, most people are afraid of change. Let's be honest, because yeah. change equals hard work. If you have a routine, you're used to that routine. It's less, I'm sorry, it is less work. Yep. When you move away from a routine, it takes on a lot of work. So that's, it's great. It's great to hear about all the hard work that you're doing. Gwen, sorry, I've been monopolizing things. I just, we got onto a topic that I'm obsessed with. So. Oh, no, I love it. I, I think it's so interesting when we're talking about like trying to, fit art into a curriculum when it seems to me that a curriculum is inherently lacking if it doesn't have that. I mean, how mm-hmm. do you, like you're missing part of history, for instance, because all art is responding to the culture and is sometimes critiquing it or elevating it or mm-hmm. offering new possibilities. So you can learn a lot. I mean, even the same way you go to any museum, like the History of Man Museum or whatnot, and you're looking at a bunch of bowls and saying, look at the artwork on this. And this tells us about this society that that is all the information that we have on the way in which people moved about and got along and it just seems to me that to leave that out, I mean, you know, um, Rudy and I had Tracy Drain, who's a NASA engineer, and mm. she's from Kentucky, and she was, you know, she's the first um, member of her family to be going to university, let alone become a NASA engineer. And we asked, what started it? She watched Star Trek. She was watching Star Trek. So this idea that there's some sort of a lacking or a disconnect between something that is creative and let's say something like the sciences is problematic. I think that Jules Verne in 20 Leagues Under the Sea basically thought about nuclear energy before we ever did. Or anybody who's interested in music and in sound, that all requires engineering skills and mathematics. So the idea of even phrasing it as though arts is somehow separate from all the other things is that it seems like all the other things are missing if art isn't there. Absolutely. I mean, they absolutely belong together. Like, And also going back to what you were saying, like art sort of opens up this space to critique. And to be honest, in a lot of the districts I've worked in, that is what they are afraid of. It's the young people opening up this space to critique the curriculum that's existed here, which is why oftentimes when I'm brought into a district, I'm paid through their racial equity department, because we know that that's where the collision is going to be, because children are going to address this curriculum that's been microaggressive um, and oftentimes violent toward them and the demographic that they come from. And I think they're up 
it's frightening to think of an uprising in the space, what that could look like. It's frightening to think of upsetting the status quo in the space and giving the kids too much voice to say, yeah, this doesn't work because if we throw it out, where do we go? You know, who do we lean into? Now, artists come in, you know, with droves of, of books and curriculum and ideas. And so we're like, lean, lean to us. We've got you, you know. But oftentimes, you know, like in the district, there's just there's sort of this line. It's like everybody's going to read Romeo and Juliet. You know, everybody's going to read Othello. If we break outside of that, you know, it's somehow dishonoring this old tradition. And I'm just like, so we can read Romeo and Juliet, but then we can also marry it with conversations around the young people's relationships today and how that connects to society and how that connects to music. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, I'm like, we don't have to get rid of it all together just yet. We can take what we have and marry it with their real lives and give them a reason to invest in the conversation and give them a reason to invest in this reading that you have here. And then we can talk about adding other reading to the mix. So it's just been, I, I think fear is just at the base of, of all of it, fear of, of rocking the boat. And even for a lot of educators that are in there, I mean, being happy is frightening. If you have gotten yourself used to sort of sitting in this routine um, and convinced yourself that you can do this until you're, you know, 65 and, and retire, and then you can decide that you want to go do something else. Addressing the fact that you're unhappy with this right now, when you just started or, or when you're 10 years in or 15 years in is really frightening. And asking yourself what more looks like is really frightening. I think for a lot of us, it was like, hey, we go to high school, we go to college and we become doctors or lawyers or you know educators. And we, sometimes that's family pressure. But a lot of times it's about making sure that we can make the uh, right amount of money to live a comfortable life. What if the thing that makes you happy doesn't have a certain financial path? What if it means you don't know where you're your next check is coming from. Like it's, it's really frightening to leave sort of the comfort of the routine. And so we battle all of that. Everybody's personal experiences come in there. And I tell educators when I come into the space that just like children, our outside lives do not leave or sit outside of the classroom door. They're just as much a part of this space as anybody else's. So it's important to have these check-ins. It's important to have to build safe space and have that at the front of your lessons. It's important to check in and see how we're all doing and how we're all feeling because there are important things that we can get in there. Like I can't teach a classroom of kids who are hungry. I can't ask a kid to check into this space when they know as soon as they leave here at 2.30, they have to go work a job because they're helping keep lights on in the house because they're in a single parent home or they have parents who are incarcerated. I can't ask them to leave all of that outside of the door. So the most basic, how are you doing, changes so much of the classroom setting. It's, it's insane, you know, and then taking it a step further and creating curriculum that kids can see themselves in so that they have a reason to tap into what we're doing here. I mean, even better, but even, even more frightening. So it's been rewarding work, but definitely hard work. A lot of, you know, crying in the car on lunch break <laughs> kind of work and just being with these educators who mean well most of the time, but are just you know, like you might upset their entire lives by asking them to believe that they deserve happiness and believe that they deserve to see themselves as more than this routine. It's personal, you know? You touched upon something that's critical about, well, hey, that's great. Is my art going to put food on the table or is my art going to keep those lights on? Like, how do you answer those questions to, I don't know, let's say you're talking to a high school kid or somebody in college who might be in pre-med, but really has a passion for acting or really has a passion for writing. How do you marry the two? Like, what do you tell them? I mean, I have, I have my spiel, but I'm curious about yours. You know, I went through the artist phase where I wasn't sure where the next one was coming in. 
there's a lot of things that I've learned along the way. And one of them is sort of figuring out how we monetize today. So if I'm a spoken word artist, a slam is only going to get me another slam. But if I am also a, you know, workshop facilitator and I'm creating workshops around, you know, poetry that fit into the educational scope, then I know that I can create a relationship with a district or connect with a teacher that I grew up with that, you know, has a poetry cycle that they need to teach. And so it's it's about, you know, networking and knowing how to pitch yourself, but also knowing how it is that we monetize in this space. How can you make money in a more organized format on top of auditioning for shows and that sort of thing? So that's been a big piece for me is talking to them about how I did that how I establish those relationships in districts, how word of mouth is just the most powerful form of marketing to this day, being on time, being clear, delivering more than, you know, sometimes more than what you promised, but making yourself indispensable in that space. And so it really has been about personal relationships. The first district that like booked me out for curriculum in Brooklyn was an educator who I was in Brave New Voices with. So it's just keeping those relationships alive. The people that you're walking around with right now become the next teachers and, and doctors and, and everybody else. So it's like connect with them, keep talking, build these workshops, be aware of what your district requires because district requirements are public information. So teaching young people to build workshops that respond to what the district requirements are are sort of like a, a passion of mine um, because you come in and teachers don't have to be afraid that having you in there is going to veer too far off of the lesson plan or you know they can't figure out how to tell district at the end of the week that they did this because it doesn't fit into what they have. Well, you studied the district ahead of time and you studied what the requirements are and you came in with something that pushes that along. And so now they're booking you in more often because the kids are so responsive to you and because it's making them show up more and they're seeing this change in their attendance and they're seeing a change in their you know engagement. So it's it's that it's it's not simple work. And even that is not a linear path, but it gets you investing in what that could look like for you. And isn't that isn't that really what we're talking about? Again, it's being creative and making money like, OK, you I hear, there's the linear path, but you with all your creativity, it's another way to become, you know, maximizing your creativity by thinking of different ways to monetize. I mean, that's it's clear today, right? Right, Brittany, with yep. with social media, with with the internet, with you know, yep. call it side hustles, with day jobs and everything. If you're not thinking about ways to monetize, if you're not thinking about that, you're not going to make it in the new economy. And let's just, let's just be yep. per- let's just be perfectly honest. Like you have to be thinking that way in order. This is this is the new world order of finance. Mm-hmm. Let, let's be honest. I maybe that's a little extreme. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. No, no, that's the reality. And and even for people that come in that are young actors, I have a godson right now who is in theater and is in all of these plays. And we recently talked about getting representation and looking at commercial work because it pays better than a whole lot of other things. If you're in theater and you want to act as a, you know, as a means of living and you need to figure out a way to create more steady income, then you need to look at representation um, and you need to get into commercial work. There's a few things you need to um, invest in in yourself to make sure that you're ready to step into those spaces and do that kind of work. So it's just, you know, like it's, it's not linear and that's frightening when you could just go to a job work your nine to five and, you know, pick up your check every two weeks. But I happen to think that being miserable is far more frightening than that. I, I can't do it. (laughs) You know, like I personally cannot do it. Being unhappy is costly. And one of the things that I'm always telling people when I come into, especially, you know, district trainings that if you don't like your job, do yourself and everyone around you a favor and quit and go follow your dreams. Because you not liking your job affects everybody in the space. And that upset the effect that you have on other people oftentimes alters their paths, especially as an educator. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're going to link Black Table Arts in the show notes. Yeah, thanks, Brittany. Brittany, I might have to, uh, if you get an email from me, because I, I might have a question or two related to some curriculum on, on behalf of a client and like how to work something, I, please don't be surprised. <laughs> please don't be surprised. Buddhism in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And check us out on Facebook, Good is in the Details Pod, and Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. Take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us. Or you can get in touch, Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, until next time. Bye.